you for listening to this podcasted message from the Garden Fellowship. The Garden Fellowship is a new and exciting church located in Burlington, North Carolina. We invite you to learn more about our church by visiting our Facebook page at facebook.com forward slash garden fellowship or by visiting our website at gardenfellowship.org. Now, we invite you to worship God through the teaching of His Word. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Tonight we'll look at the first 11 verses of chapter 5. Last time, Paul is answering these questions that the Thessalonian believers had, particularly about the return of Jesus and those who had died believing upon Jesus and Jesus hadn't come back yet. And so they had questions about what happened to them. Did they miss this rapture event? Did they miss out on the big celebration? What's happened with them? And Paul writes to them to say, no, they have not missed out on a thing. In fact, they will be the first ones at this rapture event that we talked about, this welcoming of Jesus Christ into his kingdom and escorting escorting him onto the throne uh, from which he will reign. So that finished up chapter 4, and at the beginning of chapter 5, Paul is still on the same answering of these same sorts of questions about the return of Jesus, only now he's not answering the question about what has happened to those who have died and Jesus hasn't come back. Now he's addressing the question about what about those who are still alive? What are we to do? How are we specifically, how are we to prepare for the return of Jesus Christ? How are we to get ready since he is returning? We want to be ready for him when he does return. So how do we get ready for the return of Jesus Christ? And so, how would you get ready for someone who's coming over? What's the first question you would ask for somebody that's coming over? You would ask, when are they coming? That's what we need to know in order to prepare, right? If someone's coming over to visit you, if someone's coming to have dinner at your house, if you're meeting somebody, you need to prepare for something. The first thing that you want to know is, okay, when? That's what I need to know in order to prepare. And so the Thessalonian believers were thinking along the same lines. Well, in order to be prepared for Jesus, we need to know when he's coming. And so Paul's going to answer this question for them. We all know ahead of time, even before we read it, what the answer is going to be. But he's going to answer this question for them. And he's going to tell them, that first of all, that the way that you prepare for the return of Jesus Christ is not by contemplating when he will return. The way that you prepare for the return of Jesus Christ is by working on godliness. And that's going to be the main point of this whole section. He's going to talk about through through these first 11 verses. So let's begin by reading them together. If everybody's got it in your Bible or on your Bible app or however you are reading the scripture tonight, follow along with me as I read from verse 1. Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night, while people are saying there is peace and security. Then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then, let us not not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for for wrath, 
but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. Heavenly Father, we pray that these words would do just that, that they would encourage us and build us up and convict us where conviction is needed. We pray, Lord, that your word would do its work and it would do it more effectively than it has ever done it before in our lives, that we will just be taken up in the Spirit to see you and to understand you and to experience you as your word is preached to us tonight. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So he begins here by saying, Now concerning the times and the seasons, you have no need to have anything written to you. You have no need to have anything written to you. That's sort of like saying, sometimes we hear people say today, it goes without saying. Now, whenever you hear somebody say, it goes without saying, what do they always go on to say? They always go on to say whatever needed, whatever didn't need to be said. They always go on to say what goes without saying. Paul sort of says the same thing here. You don't have to have anything written to you. You need nothing to have uh, written to you. But then he goes on and writes exactly what they didn't need to have written to him. So they didn't have uh, need for anything to be written to them regarding the return of Jesus and how they were to be preparing for his return. Or the reason that they didn't was, was probably because, of course, Paul has already taught them this. But also, like we talked about before, the Spirit of the Lord, the Holy Spirit indwells them and teaches them in their hearts. And so Paul, I think, understands that these are true and real believers who have the Holy Spirit, the great teacher, residing in their hearts and so he is a far better teacher than Paul could be for them or Timothy or any of their leaders there that they may have in the church at Thessalonica. You have no need for these things to be written to you because you have a greater teacher than that residing in you. I've already given you the information, Paul is saying. I've already told you this when I was there. Now, as far as applying this to your life, you've already got the greatest teacher, the Holy Spirit, residing in you that is doing that. You have no need to have anything written to you, but again, he's going to go on, go on and write it anyway. And for you yourselves are fully aware... That the day of the Lord, now the day of the Lord is a common phrase in Scripture, particularly in the Old Testament, and it always refers to this dreadful coming of the judgment of God. The judgment of God, of God upon unconverted sinful people. That time that the prophets warned about again and again and over and over that the Scriptures have told us is coming. That final day of the Lord, God's wrath from time to time, is poured out upon sinful people who are not repentant of their sin. But God's wrath has never yet been fully pulled, poured out on people. That is the day of the Lord, that coming day of the Lord. So he says, you're fully aware of this day of the Lord that's coming, and you're fully aware, Paul says, that it will come like a thief in the night. So here's the language that we hear Jesus using on a couple of occasions, that his return will be like a thief in the night. And a couple things to note about a thief in the night. A thief in the night is, first of all, unexpected, right? That's the whole idea behind the analogy of Jesus' return is like a thief in the night is because nobody expects a thief to break in. If you did expect a thief to break in, you would be awake and waiting for him and have 911 already dialed on your phone. But instead, we don't expect that thief to break in. And so it's a surprise, it's a sudden, it's an unexpected thing. And so that's one thing that Jesus means, and it's one thing that Paul means here, is that it's unexpected. The timing is unknown. Jesus himself said, even I don't know the, the time of my return. But like we said a couple of Sundays, or a couple of Saturdays ago, we said that Paul is not saying to the Thessalonian believers that Jesus' return will be to you 
like a thief in the night. He says very plainly, it will be to them like a thief in the night. It will be sudden and unexpected to them. Now, the other thing about a thief in the night is not only is it unexpected, it's also unwelcome. Nobody wants a thief in the night. Nobody's expecting a thief in the night, and nobody wants a thief in the night. And so Paul's saying to those who don't believe, to those outside of Christ, not only will his return be completely unexpected, it'll be completely undesired, completely unwanted. It'll be a disaster, the disaster of all disasters for them. Paul is speaking not of those who are in Christ, but of those who are outside of Christ, that Jesus' return, the day of the Lord, will be sudden, unexpected, and unwanted. But to those who are in Christ, Jesus says nobody knows the time, nobody knows the day. Paul says nobody knows the time, nobody knows the day. But I think Paul here is also saying you are not of the same type of the unbelievers. You have the Holy Spirit dwelling in you. You will not be taken as much by surprise by the return of Jesus as they. You don't know the day, you don't know the hour, you don't know exactly when it's going to be. But Paul is going to say to them that you are not in darkness for that day to surprise you like a thief. So in other words, the Holy Spirit dwelling within us will somehow teach us, as Jesus will say, you can discern the seasons, you can see the clouds coming and know that rain is coming, you can, you can discern these sorts of things. So you can also discern that the time of the return of the Lord is in some way drawing near. Not that we know exactly when, but believers will have a sense that the, the history is culminating. I believe that that sense exists today. I believe that it is either we are either in that time or that time is soon to approach in which we can say we as believers and dwelt by the Holy Spirit, we can understand that, that the time doesn't appear to be far off for the return of Jesus. We as believers won't be as surprised by the return of Jesus as unbelievers. Unbelievers will be completely taken off guard. The people of God will be surprised when He does come, but we won't be completely taken off guard in that sense. Furthermore, His return won't be like a thief in the night for us, Paul says, because it won't be unwelcomed and it won't be unwanted. It will be very much, obviously, welcomed. So he says, for them it would be like a thief in the night. Verse 3, while people are saying there is peace and security. So there will be sort of this general understanding, this general sort of belief that peace and security or peace and safety, that we're living in times of peace and we're living in times of safety. Now what about that? Are we living in times today in which people would agree these are peaceful, safe sorts of times to be, uh, time to be alive? And furthermore, what about what Jesus says over in Matthew chapter 24? You remember what Jesus says over here in Matthew chapter 24? Speaking of when He will return, He's answering the question of His disciples who asked the same question that the Thessalonian believers asked of Paul. How will we know? When will we know? When will these things happen? And Jesus says to them, See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place, but the, but the end... Is, is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these things are the beginning of the end. He says, uh, just before that in verse 6, you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. 
So on the one hand, Jesus says, just prior to my return, you're going to hear of wars, you're going to hear of rumors of wars, there's going to be earthquakes, famines, nations rising against nations. That sounds rather tumultuous. But then on the other hand, Paul says, everybody's going to be saying peace and safety or peace and security. So how do those things, two things mesh together? Jesus is saying there's going to be earthly turmoil. There's going to be people fighting people. There's going to be wars. There's going to be great unsafety or, or insecurity in the sense that there's a lot of violence. But Paul says that people are going to be seeing peace and safety or peace and security. And they don't mean peace in the sense that we are safe from violence or we are safe from other people harming us. What Paul means is that people are going to be saying that there's peace and safety in this whole idea that there's a God coming back to judge us. That's what Paul's getting at. The peace and safety that Paul is talking about that people will be saying will be this common disbelief that there is a judgment day coming. That there is a God and that God is coming back and that He will judge sinful people at that time. That's what Paul is saying, that there's going to be this widespread belief that there's no judgment that we need to worry about. And so they're going to be saying peace and security or peace and safety in the sense that we need not worry about these stories about some God coming back to judge us. But on the other hand, Jesus plainly says these will be violent days in the sense that there will be wars and people fighting and people killing. I think both of those we can easily see apply very well to our day today. Can we not? There are wars and there are rumors of wars. This is in, in, in many senses one of the most unpeaceful times of global existence, at least in recent, recent history. But at the same time, isn't there this widespread belief that there is no there is no judgment day that we need to worry about this God coming back to judge us. So we, we hear on the one hand people saying peace and safety. You need not worry about this vengeful God. But on the other hand, we are experiencing very violent days. So he says this will come like a thief in the night while people are saying there is peace and security. Then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman. Isn't that also true? That with all the modern technology and all the medical advances today, we still don't know exactly when babies will be born. Even when drugs are administered to make the birth happen at a certain time, even then we don't know when the baby's coming. So again, the idea, the element of surprise, again, for those who are not in Christ. So, uh, the sudden pains will come upon them like a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you, on the other hand, you are not in that situation. You are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. It won't be a total shock for you, neither will it be unwelcomed for you. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then, let us not sleep as others do. But let us keep awake and keep sober. So the, the thing to see there, the thing to point out there, is Paul is clearly telling us that there are two people and two people only. There are those who are spiritually awake. There are those who are children of the day. There are those who will not be surprised like a thief in the night and not see the return of, of Jesus as an unwanted, unwelcomed event. And then on the other hand, there are those who are the children of the night and they are spiritually asleep and they will not be welcoming and returning Jesus Christ. There are only two types of people. And so when we come to a passage like this, we have to stop and say, are we ready for that return? Are we ready for Jesus to return? The question has to be asked and asked 
and asked again of of one another and and of ourselves, are you ready for Jesus to return? If He returns today and we face Him, will that be a welcomed event for you or will that be unwelcome? There are only two. Jesus says you are either with me or you are against me. There's no middle ground. There's no, well, I'm in the process of deciding. You are either with Jesus or you are against Him. You are either welcoming of that day or you are dreading of that day. Which is it? You need to be sure because it could be at any time. So, we are children of the day, He says. We're not children of the night. We're children of the light. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. So there's the same ideas that Jesus uses that... When Jesus speaks of his return, he said, every time he says the point is be alert, be awake, don't be asleep, don't be spiritually lethargic, don't be nodding off to sleep spiritually speaking, be alert and be awake. That's Jesus' same point. Paul says the same thing here, be awake and be sober. So the two of those ideas, awake and sober, they correspond to each other in the sense that they both have to do with alertness. They both are the opposite of lethargic or disoriented, confused, bewildered. You know that feeling when you were woken out of a deep sleep? Do I know you? Because there's this fog, there's this disoriented, you're not quite even sure what day it is. Why why am I, what is this day? What do I have to do today? There's this disorientation. And that's exactly what Paul is talking about. This spiritual disorientation, this spiritual inebriated condition. Paul saying, do not be in that condition. Now, what does he mean? What he means is that this world in which we live tries its best every day to pull us down into that condition of being spiritually disoriented and spiritually inebriated. Here's what I mean by that. Everything in your life has a message. Every book you read, every show you watch on television, every song you listen to on the radio, every, everything in your life has a message to it. Everything that you let your kids digest has a message. Every children's book, every show they watch, every game they play on their tablet, everything has a message. And most of those messages come out of a worldview that is not a biblical worldview. And all those things are the tools of Satan to disorient us and drag us into a state of spiritual inebriation. That's not to say, well, oh, we as what we need to do as Christians is stay away from everything of the world. That's not what that's saying. What Paul is saying is you need to have your spiritual antenna up all the time. You need to be weighing everything that you encounter through your biblical worldview, through your grid of your biblical understanding. What is this message? Is this message, does this contradict the teaching of Scripture? What is this message? What is this telling to me? Everything that we encounter is like that. You know, I, I, read, I read recently, everybody's familiar with Star Wars, right? George Lucas was interviewed and he was asked this question. Why did you create Star Wars? Do you know what he answered? He said, I created Star Wars to introduce Buddhism to the Western world. 
And that's exactly what Star Wars teaches. The Force, it's Star Wars is classic Buddhist thinking. Now, that doesn't mean that we as Christians, we don't watch Star Wars or enjoy it, but that does mean that we know what we're watching and we weigh everything with the biblical worldview because if we don't, we will be lulled to sleep and we will be drawn into a state of spiritual inebriation in which we can no longer tell. You know, it's like that fog when you're just waking up. What, what is it? What day is it now? What, what do I have to do today? That's what Paul is talking about. Take that into the spiritual realm. That's exactly what he's talking about. And the way that we get there is one little step at a time by not weighing the message here, not weighing this against Scripture there, not weighing this against Scripture there, and just letting everything come in unfiltered. And the next thing we know, we're drunk. Paul says, don't let that happen. Stay awake and stay sober. Verse 7, for those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night, just like your mama told you. Nothing good happens after midnight. Verse 8, but since we belong to the day, let us be sober. How do we stay sober? How do you keep from being lulled to spiritual sleep? He tells us two things. First, having put on the breastplate of faith. What is the breastplate of faith? What does a breastplate do? It protects your heart. And what is your heart? Your heart is the symbol of your delights, of your emotions, of your desires. I was reading just this week, let me find it, I think it's in Proverbs 4. Proverbs chapter 4, verse 23. Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. The Bible teaches us the importance of the heart, and the heart sort of symbolically represents our delights, our wants, our emotions. Our heart represents that which we worship. And sometimes when we talk about worship, we think of what we're doing now, formal corporate worship. But this is this is just a form of outward formal gathering to worship. What we really mean by worship is what does what captivates your heart? What delights your heart? What is it that you desire? What is it that you think about? What, what, is, what are your goals? That's what you worship. And the Bible says protect that. Guard that. The breastplate guards the heart. And so the spiritual breastplate guards the spiritual heart. Or in other words, the spiritual breastplate is guarding those things that we delight in. Those things that we worship. Those things that we're emotional about. So put on the breastplate, or in other words, guard your heart. How do we guard our heart? We put on the breastplate of what? Faith and love. Right, you're thinking Ephesians. Paul, Paul will sort of build on this in Ephesians chapter 6. But here he says the breastplate of faith and love. Those two things. So how do we put on the breastplate of faith? How do you put on faith? How do you work on faith? How do you nurture faith? How do you grow faith? It can all be, I think, be summed up in, in one or two verses of Scripture that you should commit to memory. Proverbs chapter 3, verses 5 and 6. Say it with me if you know it. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understandings, but in all your ways acknowledge Him and He will make your path straight or direct your, your paths. That, in a nutshell, is how we nurture faith because that's what faith is. Faith is believing in the unseen. Faith is believing God when we can't see or touch or smell or feel God. 
And so that's what that verse is talking about. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understandings. That's how we exercise faith and grow faith. Faith is never grown in the things that we can see. and Faith is always occurring in the, in the things that we have to trust God on. When we see around us a world that's, so, that's violent and, and evil and hurtful and harmful, and the world wants to tell us, see, this is evidence that there is no God. And if there is a God, He's not very loving. Faith comes along and says, no, it's not. It may look that way, but God tells us in His Word that it is not. Faith comes along when, when we see the circumstance that makes no sense to us, that we cannot tell heads for tails, and we think, you know, the, clearly the common sense thing to do is this, but then God's Word comes along and says, no, this is not the way of the Lord, this is. Faith is what comes along and says, I will trust in the God that's never lied, I will trust in the God that's never been unfaithful, even though what is around me looks otherwise, I will exercise faith. So that's how we nurture it. And by doing that, that does what? It guards our delights. It guards our heart. It guards our our worshiper. Think of that, that thing right inside your chest as a little worship machine. And it will worship something. And so by exercising faith, we are guarding that worshiper so that it worships the Lord instead of being lulled into this spiritual drunkenness. Okay, That's the first thing. The other thing is the breastplate of faith and love. So love one another as they are doing. Paul's told them two times that you, you, are, you guys are doing awesome at loving one another. Everyone has heard about how these Thessalonians love one another. But you do that, as he said back in chapter 3, more and more and more. So how do we love God? John tells us, We've never seen God. How do you love God? You love God by loving your brother. Because you see your brother. You don't see God. Nobody's ever seen God. So how do you exercise love for God? By exercising love for each other. And Paul says by doing those things, by nurturing and growing your faith, by exercising your faith, and by loving one another more and more, those two things are guarding your delighter, your worshiper. That's beating right here inside your, your chest. So that's the first thing. The breastplate of faith. Guard your heart. Guard your worshiper. That will keep you spiritually awake. Secondly, he says, put on a helmet. What does a helmet protect? Brain. Your brain. Your thoughts. Your mind. So you protect your worshiper. And you protect your thinker. And your thinker needs to be protected from what? All the false, wrong thinking that the world in which we live pushes onto you every single day of your life. You cannot exist in this world without this world pushing its false thinking on you. And so we guard our thinker, we guard our thoughts, we guard the, the truths that we believe with this helmet. But how do we do that? What's the helmet? The helmet is the hope of salvation. Now, we know that when the Bible, particularly the New Testament, uses that word hope, it doesn't use it in the modern sense that we use it today. When we say hope, you know, we're saying, I hope we can have pizza for dinner. And that's just this wishful sort of thinking. I hope the Panthers win Sunday. I don't know, are they playing Sunday? So I hope, this is just sort of a wishful thinking that we really have no, little or no control over. 
The Bible doesn't use hope in that way. The Bible uses hope as this. It is an absolute certainty which gives us confidence and, and hope. That's how the Bible is. It's an absolute certainty. Your salvation is certain, and the knowledge of that is what gives you motivation and encouragement and hope in your life. So the helmet is the helmet of the hope of salvation. How do we feed the helmet of the hope of salvation? Feeding in the Word, because the Word is what tells us of our hope of salvation. So we're feeding upon the Word. We are working at loving each other. And we are guarding what we delight in. Those three things are what Paul says. This is how you guard yourself against being lulled into this spiritual state of confusion or bewilderment. With the helmet of salvation. Now verse 9. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live to Him. What was it? Two or three weeks ago we, we said... Doctrine, truth in Scripture, theology in Scripture is therefore our encouragement. When we read the truth of doctrine, when we read the truth of Scripture, it's an encouragement to us who are in Christ. So look at what Paul says here. He says the whole topic here, the whole context is don't be lulled to sleep or don't be lulled to drunkenness. He says because God has not destined us for wrath but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, what's he talking about there? God has not destined us for wrath. What does it sound like he's talking about? He started off the whole letter talking about this. Back in chapter 1, verse 4. For we know, brothers loved by God, that He has chosen you. Doesn't that sound like the same thing? He has not destined us to wrath. Paul is talking about their election. Paul is talking about the fact that they are chosen in the Lord. That God chose them from before the foundation of the earth. And what an encouragement it is to them to encourage them to stay awake. You will not be lulled to sleep because you are God's chosen. And God will not allow His chosen to be lulled into that spiritual dullness and that spiritual sleep. Not to say, well, okay, I'll just take my hands off the wheel and just coast through this whole thing called life. It's not what that's saying at all. But it is saying that God will not allow His chosen to be lulled into that spiritual condition. How do we know that? What did Jesus say back in Matthew 24? The, uh, the other place, we looked at it a little bit earlier, where Jesus is answering the same type of question. Back in Matthew chapter 24, He's talking about these coming, the terrible, dreadful day of the Lord. And He says in verse 23, And in those, if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved, but for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. So, so Jesus says that in, in some way, in some fashion, the power of the enemy will be limited so that his chosen people will not be led astray. And I think that's what Paul is getting at here. Here's some encouragement, Paul says. Yes, you've got to guard your heart. You've got to guard your worshiper. You've got to be careful what you delight in. You've got to be careful what you believe. You've got to be careful what enters into your mind and into your heart. You've got to work at loving one another. But be encouraged. Because God's behind all this. You are His chosen. He's not going to take His hand off of you and just make you have to swim on your own. He's, he's going to be right. He's, you're His chosen. He's not going to let you drown. That's the first. That's the next thing he says. Then he says, verse 10, who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Now, what does it mean to be awake or asleep? 
dead or alive, right? Just a little bit ago, he called the, those who are dead in Christ asleep, asleep in the Lord. So those who are awake are alive in the Lord. Those who are asleep are uh, dead in the Lord. So Jesus died so that whether we're dead in Christ or alive in Christ, whether we've passed away from this physical life or not yet, Jesus died that we might live with him. In other words, Jesus atoned for your sin. Jesus paid for your sin. He spilled his blood on the cross so that you could avoid hell. What does he say? So we can live. We can live with him. Jesus did that because he wants to live with us. Jesus did all that, not just so he could sit back and say, see those people way over there? Yeah, I saved them. Jesus did that so that we could live with him. Revelation 21, God says, I will be their God and they will be my people and I will be with them. Let not your heart be troubled. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. And I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself that where I am, there you may be also. Isn't that incredibly encouraging? That Jesus did that not just so we would avoid hell, but so that we would fellowship with Him and live with Him for eternity. And then he finishes verse 11. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. So again, he says the same thing he said it earlier. Basically, the point is this. I'm not giving you these words just so you can sort of put them on a picture frame and hang it on the wall of what, whoever's house this church is meeting in or put it on wherever your church meets so that everybody can read my words and be encouraged. Paul says, take these words, put them in your heart, and you use them to encourage each other because that's your job. In the body of Christ, it's your job to use these words to encourage one another. We hope you enjoyed this podcasted message from the Garden Fellowship. The purpose of the Garden Fellowship Church is to make disciples of Jesus Christ through loving God, loving each other, and loving our community. We hope you were blessed by this message.
You can learn more about our church by visiting our Facebook page at facebook.com forward slash garden fellowship or by visiting our website at gardenfellowship.org.